0: All right, well, good morning. Today we are continuing our study of this very foundational book that tells us so much about our world that we live in, but even more than that, about our God, the very first book in the Bible. The book of Genesis. And so if you have a Bible, we'd like to invite you to open it to that passage that Bernie just read. It's found in Genesis chapter 9. So go ahead and make your way there. If you don't own a Bible, as always, um, we want you to feel free to use the Bible in the pew in front of you and even take that Bible home with you today as our gift to you. We'd love for you to to be able to read God's Word with us today. It's Genesis chapter 9. Now if you follow sports or politics very closely, you know that these last two weeks there has been some considerable debate around this concept of second chances. When an individual fails miserably, whether they failed their teammates or they fail as a husband, they fail as a wife, whether they fail ethically, the, the people that we want to know, are they worthy of been, being given a second chance? Uh, The San Francisco 49ers, for all you football fans, are having to ask that question about a a very talented wide receiver that they desperately need, but who seemed to fail his teammates in the city of Pittsburgh. They kind of want him, but they're wondering, do we give him a second chance? Uh, Colleagues in in, uh, Virginia are asking that about a couple of their colleagues that are politicians who who had uh, evidence of, of inappropriate behavior in their past. Do we give them a second chance? Without getting into any debates this morning about those particular cases, I am very grateful and and I am very sure this morning that we serve a God that gives second chances. How many of you are grateful that God gives second chances this morning? Anybody in this room? I I am very grateful for that. I thought about this concept of, of, of a God who gives second chances a lot a couple weeks ago when I had dinner with another pastor who had made some very horrible decisions in his college years, and those horrible decisions led to 20 years in a federal prison. In that federal prison, this individual heard the gospel, he received the gospel with great joy, spent the next 15 years studying the scriptures while in prison, and today he's now eight years removed out of prison. He is married, he has kids, and he is leading a church that is leading countless people to Jesus Christ, all because we serve a God of second chances. Another example of that came in a recent newsletter that I received from one of our global partners. And in this newsletter, there was a testimony of a, a brothel owner who had, had literally taken advantage of young women for profit her entire life. Well, by the grace of God, our local partner shared the gospel with this individual. She came to know Christ, closed the brothel, and is living for the kingdom of Christ now, all because we serve a God of second change. my. Goodness. As you look at your own personal story, I think if you're honest with yourself, you can look at it and say, my goodness, God has given me second chance after second chance after second chance. And the same is true in this book. In the Bible, it is full of stories of second chances. Moses, after he had questioned God. King David, after murder and adultery. Rahab, after prostitution. You go to the New Testament, the the, the prodigal son who had squandered his father's inheritance. Peter, after he had denied Jesus three times. We serve a God of second chances. And one of the first places we see this principle in action is in our text today, Genesis chapter 9. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, we learned that sin and violence had literally become commonplace among humanity leading up to the flood. Uh, where instead of walking with God and worshiping their creator like, as they were designed to do, humanity said, God, we don't need you to be our God. We're going to do what we want to do. And in the end, they ended up destroying one another. They ended up destroying themselves. And it says that as God looked upon his creation in all of this sinful rebellion, it said that it broke his heart. It grieved the heart of God. That's what we talked about last week. I thought that was so powerful that our sin grieves God. Well, he could not allow this sinful chaos to continue. And in his judgment, act of righteous judgment, last week we talked about he brought the flood. But even in his judgment, he gave grace. If you remember in chapter 6, verse 8, it said that, that God looked upon Noah, this man named Noah, with favor, with unmerited favor, with grace. Noah was a sinner like the rest of his generation, and yet God gave him grace. And it said that Noah responded to that grace by faith. He obeyed God's commandment. He built an ark, and through the ark, God saved Noah and his family. It was an act of incredible grace in the midst of judgment. And so as we get to chapter 9, Adam and Noah and his family have come out of the ark, and in essence, we see a God that gives humanity a second chance. And so we read these words in chapter 9, verse 1. He says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, does that sound familiar to anyone? It should sound very familiar because that's almost exactly what God had said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. It's as if God is a director and he's coming and he's saying, All right, humanity, take two. Let's do this better, let's do this differently. And so he tells Noah and his family the same thing he told Adam and Eve. And in this passage, we're going to see that the same commitments that God had with Adam and Eve, he has for humanity here. There are three key commitments that we see about God in this passage as we look at this God that gives second chances. And the first is this, that God is committed to his creation. Now in all three of these, these are going to kind of be repetitive over something we talked about in chapter one, and yet God brings it back up. And therefore, we are going to bring it back up this morning. When I say creation, I'm talking specifically about non-human life, okay? I'm talking about the earth, the oceans, the seas. I'm talking about animal life, the the birds in the the seas, the the, the, the animals in the ocean, the birds in the seas. That's what we're talking about this morning. This commitment needed to be reiterated because there was a big difference between God's words to Adam and Eve and his words to Noah and their family, and that difference was sin. You see, the Bible teaches that not only did the sin of Adam and Eve impact humanity, we've seen the brokenness and sin and violence and all of that came from Adam and Eve's sin, but it says that his sin also messed up all creation, messed up everything. It wasn't just humanity, it was all things. And so this relationship of of humanity and creation being in harmonious, now it was strained. We see a glimpse of that in verse 2. Before the fall, animals and humanity lived in a harmonious relationship. But in verse 2 it says what? The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. So the the picture here is our relationship with creation is now strained. In Genesis 3, it said that the the ground would now have thistles, that it it would not be what it meant to be. Sorry, let me tighten this real quick. That the ground would produce thistles and weeds, that now animals would be scared of humanity, that there would not be that harmony that once existed. But what God makes clear is that in this new reality of sin, His original design and calling upon humanity has not changed. We, as his creation, are called to be stewards of the rest of his creation for his glory. You see God do something very interesting in chapter 9, and I don't want you to miss it. Look with me at verse 9. It says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Now here, he's talking to Noah, right? He's talking to Noah and his family, and and that word covenant is an important word because it means it's a binding promise of relationship. We're going to talk about this more in a bit, but God enters into covenant with people. Okay, that's what you find out throughout the scriptures. But in this one instance, he goes on. He doesn't just say that his covenant is with Noah. Read verse 10. He says, And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, And every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. Isn't that interesting? This is the only time in the Bible his his covenant is not just with Noah, but it says it's with every living being, every creature. But then he continues on in verse thirteen. Look at this. He says, "I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and what the earth." This is significant. This is the only place in the Bible where God enters into a covenant that is universal in scope. It's not just with one person. It's not just with one nation. It's with the entire created world. And he enters into a covenant with it. Now, God did not have to do that. God has already shown his commitment to creation. He created it. He sustained it. He caused it to flourish. But here, the fact that he enters into a covenant with creation points to his ultimate plan and desire to redeem, restore all of creation. You see, this is what uh, Romans chapter 8 is getting at. If you've ever been reading through Romans 8, all of a sudden it begins to talk about the creation and it says this. It says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. In other words, because of humanity's sin, it was subjected. But because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That is a powerful picture. It says that literally everything Everything in creation, from the smallest animal to the greatest creature to the ocean, that everything in creation is groaning in pain. It's waiting for God to put an end to sin and to restore it, just like it's going to, he's going to restore us. You say, Ryan, why is this important? Why would God restore his creation? Well, you need to understand that every bit of creation... From the oceans to the mountains to the animals, every bit was created with one singular purpose. And that was this, to declare his glory. That's why it matters to God. You read this in Psalm 19, it reflects on this thought. It says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. I love that passage. What it says is that everything in creation has a voice. This is not just poetic language. He's saying that if you listen to the roar of the Pacific Ocean, if you go and listen as you look at the landscape of a snow-capped Lake Tahoe, if you listen as you stare up at the heights of the redwoods, all of them are in one voice declaring one thing, glory to God. They're shouting it. They have a voice. This is the reason that when we look at something beautiful and amazing in creation, there is something within us that says there has to be a God, powerful and creative, that stands behind all of this. It's because they're speaking. They're shouting the glory of our God. And friends, this is the reason that we are called to be good stewards of God's creation. Here in America, if you if you listen to most people, the reason they give for us to be good stewards of creation is that if we don't, it will come back to bite us. It's all about us. It's utilitarian. We have to take care of it because it's all about us. You go to some parts of the world and, and they worship parts of the creation as a God. They say it's all about the tree, it's all about the water. Friends, neither one of those is true. It's about God. The reason that we are good stewards of this earth, the reason that we're good stewards of all these things that he has given us is because we want their voice to be heard from this day until the day that they are restored and renewed in the same way that we are restored and renewed. We are caring about God's earth. We are committed to the preservation and the cultivation of God's good earth because God is committed to his creation. Secondly, we see a second point, and that's this. God is committed not only to his creation, but God is committed to human life. By this point in Genesis, sin has taken a very large toll on human life. Within just a few chapters, violence and murder had become very common before the flood. So, from the beginning of humanity, take two, God makes very clear that human life is utterly valuable to him. We see this in a number of ways that he's committed to it. First thing that we see is, is his commitment to produce human life. When you look at verse one, he tells Noah, I'm going to bless you. Now be fruitful and multiply. He says, I'm going to bless you. And one of the greatest blessings I'm going to give you is the ability to produce human life. To go out and to multiply and fill the earth. Now, I would imagine Noah's wife and the, the, his son's wives are all like, man, that is quite a task. Fill the earth. But God says this is a great blessing. The ability to have children, to have life is a blessing. I think in many ways, as you think about San Francisco, we live in a city that, in a number of ways, devalues children. I think in our city, many people look at children as a a hindrance to, to being a successful person, a hindrance to living a pleasurable, self focused life, a nuisance to the hipster vibe that we're trying to create in many occasions. If you don't believe me, you can walk over to Boba Guys with my wife and I and our three kids right after the service. Every time we go over there, it's like everybody just looks at us. They don't know what to do. Three children. If we had dogs, they'd be fine. But no, not kids. But from the very beginning, God has said, children are a blessing from the Lord. He is committed to human life. And he says, go be fruitful and multiply. This is a blessing I've given to you. Second, not only does God produce human life, but God provides for human life. Verse 3. It says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. In the same way that God provided everything that Adam and Eve needed in the garden, he says, now, right after they've come out of the ark, he says, I've provided everything you need. And praise God, that now includes the addition of meat. I know some of you are vegetarians in the room. I get that and that's great. I'm all for you. I especially like going to barbecues with you, because that means more meat for me. So I'm very thankful for vegetarians, and up until this point, they were. But God says, now you can eat meat. All of this I have given to you. And so as I was reading this this week, my birthday is coming up in like a week and a half, and I was already anticipating the steak that I'm going to eat to the glory of God. And so... He gives this to humanity. Now, do we have to be wise about this? Do we have to be good stewards and eat wisely? Add vegetables to our meat? Absolutely, yes. But God here says, I've provided everything you need. I've provided, I've given it to you. Every good thing we have to eat is from the hand of God. He provides for human life. But last but not least in this text, he preserves human life. He cares about the preservation of human life. Verse 5 And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This is so important. I know that it's easy for, for many of us just to get distracted in this part of the text and And say, well, what are the implications then for just war or self-defense or capital punishment? What what do we do with all of that? Well, that's not the main point, what what he's getting at here. The main point here is the serious commitment God has to the preservation of human life. If you're reading this text, by this point in the Bible, a very valid question would be, does man, is he still made in the image of God? Or has sin just totally erased that? Well, God's answer here is clear. He says, yes, the, my image has been blurred by sin, but my image is still in man. And the fact that it is in man means that every human life is utterly precious and valuable to me. In this text, God is declaring every human being, old or young, intelligent or unintelligent, male or female, rich or poor, every single human being has value, worth, dignity, and should be treated by others as something holy, of something, as something of great worth to God. The fact that we're made in his image means that we display God in a way that nothing else in creation can. And for that reason, taking a human life is a major, major deal in the eyes of our God. See, this truth is so important because it plays out in so many of the commitments that we, as God's people, are called to. This truth is the reason Christians care about and advocate for the unborn. The Bible, in every way, is clear that at the moment of conception, babies are alive and bear the image of our God. They are distinct. They have their own DNA. They have their own blood. So or not. They are human whether or not our culture deems them to be so or not. As This week I was thinking about this. If you think about it, the greatest atrocities in human history have come when one group in power has deemed a more vulnerable group to be less than human. Have you ever thought about that? A person in power deems the other to be less than human. You wonder, how does a sophisticated German society go along with the Holocaust? Holocaust. Because they deemed Jews to be less than human. How did our founding fathers who who spoke so eloquently about equality and justice and rights for all go along with slavery? Because they deemed those they enslaved to be less than human. Well, friends, I am grateful that the Bible does not make this mistake when it comes to the unborn. Luke 1.15 says that John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit, even from his mother's womb. You look at Psalm 139, this incredible picture. uh, The writer says to God, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. It's this incredibly powerful picture of God having a plan and a purpose and a design for a baby in the womb. Friends, it should break our hearts When we see videos like that have been all over the internet these last week of a room full of people cheering and celebrating the ability to have late term abortions in New York, it should break our heart when we read news articles like the one I read recently about Iceland and there's this boasting of being a country that has eliminated individuals with Down syndrome through abortion. It should break our hearts. My goal this morning is not to be political. I promise that is not my goal because I believe this is bigger than a political issue. doesn't matter what side of the aisle you are on. I believe that the reality of abortion in America breaks the heart of our God. And we should be committed to preserving life because God is committed to human life. I know some of you in this room disagree with me. Even more than that, I know that some of you have walked through the painful path of abortion. And you feel deeply whenever this issue is talked about. I want you to know my desire in no way is to heap guilt or shame on you this morning. That is not my intention. Our God is a God of second chances. There's nothing that we have done or could do that is more powerful than what Jesus has done for us on the cross. He loves you. He is for you. He can take even our worst things and make them useful for his glory. Please hear that. But it is important that we as a church wrestle with the implications of this text. Are we committed to preserving human life? You've got great opportunities, church. We are, committed, are connected with a local ministry here called Alpha Pregnancy Center that comes alongside young moms who, who choose to keep their babies and they need diapers, they need care, they need babysitters. We want to come alongside those mothers. We need to get into fostering. There's a great organization called Foster the Bay, a Christian organization that tries to help connect church members with the needs of the foster care system. We've got all sorts of ways that we can get involved and advocate, but church, are we doing so? But I also want you to see this morning that God is pro-life in other ways as well. And this is where Christians, especially Christians in our context, have have very much missed the mark in many ways. I've said this before and I will continue to say it. The Bible's teaching about the image of God is the only and the greatest basis for fighting against the injustice, the racism, and the nationalism that plagues our country. The fact that every human being has worth and dignity and should be fought for because they are made in the image of God, is the only legitimate basis. It is the only legitimate basis for standing up for those with Down syndrome, for caring for those who are immigrants and refugees, for serving and loving every person we come in contact with, whether that's the homeless wanderer or the elderly person that can no longer take care of themselves. We as God's people are not called to just sit by and wait for heaven. We are called to pour our lives out for the sake of others that they may know the love of the God whose image they are created. That is our calling, church family. Far too often, people who do not know Jesus lead the way in these other areas. It's interesting. Even though they have no basis, even though the average resident of San Francisco is secular in nature, even though they believe that we come from nothing and that we're going to nothing, somehow they believe intrinsically what God says in this passage that people are valuable. And so what you find is the average resident of San Francisco speaks up for immigrants. They speak up for refugees. They speak up against racism. They they speak up and they give generously. They live their lives in this way even though they have no legitimate basis for it. Church, what I want you to understand is the basis that you have. You know about the image of God. You know how unique and valuable people are. You know what God has done for us. How much more should we lead the way in being a people that are for life, committed to life in all of these other areas? I think John Calvin summarized this thought very nicely in a sermon. He said this, he said, The Lord commands us to do good to all without exception. But when we look around at our fellow human beings, we see so many who are unworthy if judged by their own merits. But here, Scripture helps us in the very best way. When it teaches us that we are never to consider what men merit of themselves, but to look upon the image of God in all. You say, but he is contemptible and worthless. But the Lord shows him to be one to whom he has designed to give the beauty of his own Image. Church family, do you see people like that? We talked about this three weeks ago, and I bring it right back up because God brings it right back up. Do you see people in the street as bearing the image of God? Do you advocate for them? Do you look for the vulnerable of our society and say, How can we, as God's people, come alongside them? This is our calling this morning. God is committed to life. Do we exhibit that same commitment? The last thing in this text is this: not only is God committed to human life and His creation, but friends, there's great news that God is committed to you. You see, it would be very easy for us to hear these first two points and to go out into the world and say, "Okay, I got this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna be a good... fight against injustice. I'm gonna do all. I'm gonna recycle. I'm gonna do all these good things. I'm gonna go and, and give people value. I'm gonna fight against injustice. I'm gonna do all of this." here's the problem all of us no matter how hard we may try still have the remnants of sin and the problem for all of us is that we don't need just second chances we need third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances we need a god that is going to be faithful to us that is going to work in us despite the many failures that we have in this life and that's what we see in this text The reason I can say that is this passage includes the very first covenant that God makes. And this is going to be one of the prevailing themes throughout the rest of the Bible, that of a covenantal God. A covenant binds two parties together. So when you go into the Bible and you read it, God binds himself to humanity in certain ways, and he makes promises that he will fulfill. The covenant here in Genesis chapter 9 is, like I said before, a universal covenant. It's, it's, it's unconditional. It doesn't matter what you or I do. He's going to live up to this commitment. He's not going to flood the earth again. It's a universal covenant. It's unconditional. He says, I'm going to give you a sign of this covenant. It's the rainbow. Every time you look at the rainbow, it's a, going to be a reminder of this covenant that I'm not going to destroy the earth. When you think about that, that's incredible grace on God's part. Sin is just as evident now as it was before the flood. We're just as violent, we're just as unjust now as they were before the flood. But because of common grace, God says, I'm going to be patient with you. I'm not going to give you the judgment you deserve. So you look at that, you think, wow, what an incredible God. As you continue reading forward in the Bible, you see God make more covenants. He enters into a covenant with Abraham. We're going to talk about that in chapter 12. Where he blesses Abraham and he promises that that through Abraham's descendants, he's going to bless all the nations. It's a significant covenant. You read a little bit further, he enters into a covenant with the people of Israel. This one is a conditional covenant. He says, if you obey me, if you walk with me, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will give you this promised land and it will be yours. But if you disobey me, if you disregard this covenant, you'll be removed from the land. The Old Testament is a picture of that covenant being played out. That's the Old Covenant. But friends, as great as these Old Testament covenants are, they are merely pointing to the greatest covenant. A covenant that is not based on our ability. A covenant that is not based on our our willingness to, to serve and follow. It's a covenant that's based on His faithfulness. And it's a covenant that's only in Jesus Christ. You see, all of these other covenants were pointing to this final covenant. Hebrews eight verse six says this, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is a much more excellent one than the old. As the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. That's a picture of saying this new covenant that Jesus brings is the one that all the other ones were leading to. This new covenant is not just to a person like Abraham; it's not universal either, like the one he makes to Noah. Instead, this covenant is to those to whom Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. This covenant is for those who turn from their sin and put their trust in Christ. And in this covenant, there are incredible promises. He promises that the law is no longer going to be written, but it will be on our hearts that his spirit will live within us. In this new covenant, he promises to wipe away our sins. In this new covenant, he promises that we won't just know about God, but that we'll be in relationship with him. This new covenant is superior in every way, but it only comes through giving your life to Jesus. Just as the old covenant, the Noah covenant, had the rainbow as a sign, he says, I've given you a sign of this new covenant. It's what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 25 says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So, you have to understand these signs, they're they're symbols. The cup of the communion table is a symbol of Jesus' blood that was poured out for us. The broken bread is a symbol of his body that has been broken for us, that he took the punishment for sin that we deserve. He took upon himself God's judgment so that we wouldn't have to, so that we could be brought into relationship with Christ. And so, just as when we look at the rainbow, we're reminded of God's grace in the midst of judgment. Now we come to the Lord's table. We take communion. Every time we're reminded that Jesus took the justice that we deserved. And we can rest in that relationship. We can rest in this new covenant that no matter how many times I fail, his death on the cross is enough for me. It covers all of my sins. Friends, do you have this relationship? God has committed to you. He has made a way for you to be in relationship with him but it only comes through Jesus Christ. It comes through knowing him, through loving him, through turning from your sin and trusting him with all your heart. If you don't have this relationship, I implore you today, ask Jesus to come and to change your life. Give him lordship of your life. Today, if you do have this relationship, then the question becomes this, what tangible ways are you living out his calling on your life to be committed to his creation and to be committed to humanity? In what ways are you stewarding the creation for his glory? How are you providing for the needs of of other people? As you go out into your workplace, as you go out into the street, do you see people as bearing the image of God and do you treat them in that way? How are you advocating for those who are most vulnerable? How are you treating those that are different than you, that believe different than you, that act different than you, that look different than you, that the world deems to be less than human? What tangibly are you doing?